0: My name is Dustin Carpenter. I am the pastoral assistant uh, at Jesus Our Redeemer Church down in Federal Hill. Uh, The joke that some of you guys know is pastoral assistant is not assistant pastor. It's assistant to the pastor. So if you're familiar with the office, I am Dwight Schrute. (laughs) Joel has uh, graciously uh, allowed me to preach while he is away. Uh, on his 11th, is that right? 11th anniversary. Is he on a cruise? He's on a cruise, all right? Know where your money's going, all right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it's interesting because the last time I came here, I didn't really have to give an introduction. See, I'm a former member at the garden. I actually was one of the first interns in the internship program, so usually I just come up on stage and kind of start, but uh, to give a little background, um, I am married with three girls. We just had our third baby last month, and uh, man, it's, it's kind of like basketball. Um, you guys are NBA fans, like Mandy and I, that's my wife's name, we went from, you know, man-to-man defense, and now we're having to play zone. And that third baby, she's always shooting the open three, and it is a uh, it's killing us. It is killing us. Um, so yeah, uh, my wife and I uh, are looking to plant a church in the Charles Village Waverly neighborhood in 2016, where we are hoping to see the gospel spread uh, between Hopkins students, Morgan State students, and pretty much uh, with that neighborhood being the most diverse neighborhood in the city, just seeing a good group of people come to know the Lord and worship in every tongue and language. Um, So yeah, let's get started. It's not okay, they took it down. We're not in 1 Corinthians today. We're actually doing 2 John. All right? So open your Bibles to 2 John. Not John 2. Clarify. 2 John, which is the uh, if you go to the back of the Bible, there's Revelation, Jude, third John, and then Second John. all right? One of the shortest books in the Bible. Let's read God's word together. "The Elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose that what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are good, you are awesome, and you are holy. Lord, we thank you that you have allowed us to gather here today to worship you to praise your glorious and holy name. Lord, we pray for hearts that will open to you, that you will open hearts today, awaken them from their sins. Lord, we pray that the words that come out of my mouth are not my words, but the words you want me to say. That the thoughts are not my thoughts, Lord, but your thoughts. Lord, give me wisdom as I preach. Give us strength as we listen. Lord, we need you of every hour and every day. Let this be true in our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen. So you guys just read a whole book of the Bible, right? That's a pretty good start to the day. I, uh... When I was, when Joel asked me what sermon I was going to preach on, I was thinking to myself, like, man, like, it's every young preacher's dream to preach through a book of the Bible. And now I can say I've done that. It might be a cop-out for choosing one of the shortest books, but hey, I'm not counting verses. Um, But I think oftentimes when we're living our everyday life, we kind of get caught up in the busyness of, you know, work, family, and home life, and just everything comes in between. And then we try, to, we try to rush in and, you know, read our Bible at the last second, trying to get s- some wisdom, some insight, some just time with God. And so often what I do is when I'm in that predicament is I go to the shorter letters of John so that way I feel good about myself, you know? Like, I not only read the Bible today, I read a whole book of the Bible. Now, I don't tell my wife what book of the Bible I read. I'm just like, you know how spiritual I am, honey? I just read a book of the Bible. And then my wife will usually call me out on it. That's how a good marriage is, is when your wife calls you out on your uh, ego. So let's kind of lay the foundation before we really jump into the text to see what we're actually looking at, what we're actually reading. So some background information. Who wrote this book? I think it's clear that John wrote this book throughout church history, especially among the early church fathers It has been attributed to the Apostle John, all right? The son of thunder. He's also very, uh, he likes love, all right? Which is what you see throughout a lot of his writings. So, son of thunder and a real romantic guy, all right? Um, What's more interesting to me was who the letter is to, all right? Because it's interesting, like, a lot of the letters are like to the church in Ephesus or to the church in Corinthia or um, the church in Asia, you know? But here it's to an elect lady and her children. And so uh, scholars debate, there's two views on who this person is or who these people are. And the first view is it's the basic meaning of the text, pretty much like it was a letter to a lady friend of John's, all right, and her children, The second view uh, is the view that it's actually a play on words. And if you look at the Greek, lady and children are actually just a metaphorical way of saying to a local church and its members. All right? And it's interesting. The Message Bible, Eugene Peterson, actually paraphrases it that way, um, which I found unique. I actually spent three hours just uh, reading research, trying to come down on. Is it this view or this view? And at the end of three hours of research, I can tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's definitely this view. And then I was like, oh, no, it's kind of this view, actually. And so I honestly don't know. Um, it's interesting what uh, Mark Devers states In short, many Christians from early centuries of the church, as well as the majority of modern biblical scholars and interpreters, have taken this lady to be John's metaphorical way of greeting a local church and its members. And, you know, honestly, I think it's okay to view it both ways because the reality is, is this letter is for Christians. So if you are a Christian, this is a letter for you, all right? So just insert your name instead of lady, all right? The elder to the elect, Mike. The elder to the elect, Paul. The elder to the elect, Megan. What I found interesting, though, uh, was why they didn't use names, all right? So when 2 John was written, it was written uh, somewhere in the late, early 1st century, which most scholars would say between 80 and 90 AD, which was the second great persecution of Christians under Emperor Domitian. Domitian. I'm a history teacher, and I stink at pronouncing people's names. It's why I don't like hockey. I don't watch hockey because I can't pronounce any Canadian person's last name. (laughs) Just telling the truth. But um, anyway, uh, so it was during the second great persecution that John himself was boiled alive in oil, all right, which is not fun. I don't know, like, when I think about it, like I used to work at Jerry's Subs and Pizza, and I used to be the grill master and would ever fry oil, like when we put the fries in the oil and it, like the splash would come up, that stuff hurt. And so I'm thinking, man, this guy basically sat in a tub of oil and probably just like skin melting off, you know? And then after that, Domitian was like, all right, now I'm going to exile you to this island. Goodbye. Christians left and right were being murdered. So I think that's why John is very vague. He doesn't give an address or doesn't say who this letter's to, it's the elder to the elect lady, all right? I, and it's interesting, because I was thinking, my wife and I were watching The Book Thief the other night, how I many of you guys have seen that movie? And it, wow, only a few of you? Man, you guys got to see that movie, it's good. I'll give you my free red box code, all right? It's DVD on me, DVD on me, type that in. I don't know if it still works, but it should. Um, <laughs> And anyway, during the movie, the movie is about, uh, it's in Nazi Germany, and it's about this family and a young girl and a runaway Jew who is hiding in their basement. So I guess a better example would be the, um, uh, there we go, Diary of Anne Frank. Is it Anne or Anna? Anne. Anne? Anne Frank, all right? So kind of get that mindset, all right? And I'm thinking, like, in the movie that they, they were, she didn't. She was not allowed to tell anyone that there was somebody hiding in her basement. All right, she was not allowed to give any letters to him or do anything because that would give him away. And I'm thinking, man, that's that would, must have what it was been like in the early church, you know? Because it would have been completely stupid of a Jew to write a letter to somebody with their exact address, name, and everything, talking about the Jewish life and then giving it, and the Nazis are like, well, this is an easy one, right? And so I think this is what the Christians were doing. They're not writing letters to exact people at this point because they don't want to get caught. They don't want to be burned in oil like John. So now let's move on. Uh, This is a short letter, only 13 verses, but I think it's jammed packed with theology and application we have to remember, this, is a, this letter was sent at a time when the church was under great persecution from the outside and false teaching from the inside. I mean, this is the double whammy. This is like you're suffering from polio and then getting shot in the stomach. That's what it's like, you know? The church is having forces from both the outside and the inside attacking it every which way. And so John is writing this letter saying, This is the stuff that matters. These are the things you need to hold to. All right? So I'm going to give you three things that matter in the Christian life. So if you are taking notes, three things. All right? Love matters. Obedience matters. And truth matters. Love matters. Obedience matters. And truth. So number one, love matters. Look at verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. I think you'll see right away that even though I've separated love, obedience, and truth, John has interconnected them. You can't have love without obedience. You can't have obedience without truth. You can't have truth without love. All right. So often what you'll see when I'm speaking, is I'm, I, I've interconnected it. Because that's just how it is. We, I think it's an American thing to think in categories, alright? Where that's just not how the Bible works, alright? Obedience is connected to love, and love is connected to truth. Truth is connected to obedience. But we could see from John that love really does matter. If you think about his writings, I mean, John is famous for the love category right in the gospel of john what's the famous verse for god so loved the world man and then in first john right where do we find out that god is love by john john loves love he is a big proponent of writing about love in the christian life and just how much jesus loves but what is love And when I immediately think of that, I have the song come in my head. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Maybe, John, you could play it for us afterwards. That'd be great. During communion, yeah? (laughs) Uh, But when I think about the lyrics to that song and some of the other songs that come uh, on our radio station, I mean, unless you're a Christian and you only listen to Christian radio, you know, because that's the good Christian thing to do. Just saying. Just saying but a lot of the songs that we hear about love, it's not really love, you know? It's more of a, a Hallmark card splashed with uh, hearts and romanticism and sprinkled, lightly sprinkled, with lust-filled hormonal sexual urges. That's pretty much every love song on the radio, right? And so we, we kind of don't really have a good grasp of what love is. Like, we think love's this kind of emotional... Uh, and it, it could be fleeting kind of deal, whereas I think that the Bible's idea of love is much more gritty. I was watching a video that the Southern Baptist Convention did on Baltimore, and they asked uh, a couple people, like, what describes Baltimore? And the, ver- the adjective that kept coming up was gritty. It was raw. Baltimore's a raw, gritty city. And I'm thinking, you know what, that's, that's very much like the Bible, The Bible's definition of love is very raw and gritty. It's very bold. It's much more brave than our definition of love usually is. And I think uh, love in the Bible is not some emotional roller coaster, but is very much an action-filled word. It's not enough to say I love you. For you married couples out there, or for people who are about to be married, um, it's not enough to say I love you. You have to show it with your actions, right? Doing the dishes every night, that is how I love my wife. <laughs> I saw this picture actually on uh, Twitter, and it was, uh, it was the guy texting his wife, and he's like, hey, I'm about to show you a sexy picture. Make sure your coworkers aren't looking. And his wife was like, oh, man, I wonder what the picture is. And it's a picture of a clean sink. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is how you, uh, that's how you love your wife right there. But realize that it's not love, even though I'm saying uh, our definition of love is very emotional, realize that love is not callous either. It's not unemotional. Love is emotional, just not to the end of the spectrum that we usually make it. Look at Jesus, all right? John tells us what love is by pointing to how Jesus loved. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus just didn't say, I love you. Jesus showed us love with his life. 1 John 4.9-10 says, The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. How? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a very action-filled statement, right? Jesus didn't come to say, I love you, and then take off. Jesus came, said, I see how dirty your sin is. I see how unclean your soul is. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to die a horrible, terrible death on the cross Suffer amidst agony and pain. Take on your sin, your personal sin, the porn you looked at this morning, the way you looked at that woman, the way your anger was towards your husband. I took on that sin. Mark Dever says this love is not a loose love, it's not simple affection, nor is it cold and dispassionate obedience. No, it is warm. And it desires to give itself for the good of others. That is what John is talking about here. Real Christianity involves love. And I think what Dever's is getting at, and I think what you know, John is getting at, is that when it comes down to it, when you are in the midst of persecution, when you are in the midst of living in a world that has fallen, what is it that matters to you? I pray that it's love. I pray it's the love that you show your family, the love you show your friends, especially the love that you show your church members. Are you loving your church members by helping them with their needs? And church members who have needs, are you sharing those needs? That's the hugest thing. That's the the biggest struggle is uh, in our Bible study. We have a prayer night every three weeks, all right, and we'll sit around, and we'll just sit there and be quiet because nobody wants to talk and share their needs, and I, my wife finally has to do something. I finally have to do something. I say, here's my need. We need money for this. (laughs) Like, we're poor. Help us, and you know what? The people in our small group, they don't just, oh, I'll pray for you about it. It's, oh, well, let me show you love by helping you meet that need, It's a blessing that so many people want to babysit our kids, all right? Three girls is a hard job, (laughs) let me tell you. Especially one, an eight-year-old who is a diva. I don't know how many, you know how many times I've watched Frozen since it's come out? I mean, it's gotten so bad that my pastor had to sit me down and say, you're not allowed to use Frozen illustrations in your sermons anymore. (laughs) Not allowed to. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then when I was writing this, I had a Frozen illustration. I, and I told my wife, I told Mandy. She's like, you can't use that. But I was like, it's so good. <laughs> I'm going to use it right now. Uh, at the end of the movie, right? Right? At the end of the movie, you know, um, I know. I'm sorry. You've had a month to see it. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault. Um, at the end of the movie, Anna needs to find a have true love's kiss so that her heart won't freeze and she won't become an icicle. All right? That's what she thinks. She that's cuz she has to do a an act of true love. All right? And so she sees the man running that will give her her kiss. And then on the other end she sees her sister about to be slain. This is the girl who I mean her sister who gave her the heart disease that was going to kill her, right? She sees her sister about to be slain by this sword and she instead of being saved by the true love's kiss, she runs over She steps in front of the sword and she turns to a crystal right as the sword comes down on her. And then the sword breaks, the bad guy flies away, and the sister cries at the love that was shown her. But then she becomes unfrozen. And the little creepy snowman dude is like, oh, true act of love. That's bad. I should know the quote. Like I said, I've seen the movie by now. Um but true act of love. And they're like, oh, love is sacrifice. Love is not just a kiss. Love is sacrifice and action. Number two, obedience matters. Love was kind of fun. Now we're going to get hard here. Obedience matters. And I think the reason that is is because even though we're Christians, we're still Americans, and we don't like rules and obedience. Like, ugh. Even I, who I'm in, I'm in pastoral ministry, I don't like that word. Like, ugh, I don't really like that word, but uh, the Bible says I need to like that word. So I better start liking that word. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 this time. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John takes obedience very seriously. Throughout his writings, you see John placing obedience in a very high category. And I think the reason John does this is because Jesus took obedience seriously. I want to give you three reasons why Jesus took obedience seriously and then two reasons why you should, all right? So if you're, if you're taking notes, we're in point B or point two and then three reasons for Jesus should be A, B, C and then for you it would be uh, D, E, all right? Makes perfect sense. So we have five points within a point, cool? Let's do this. Jesus took obedience seriously because his obedience showed that he loved the Father and he wanted to show the world. John 14, 31 states, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus very much connects love and obedience together, that you can't have one without the other, pretty much. You want to see how much I love the Father? Watch how much I obey him. Right? Are we not happiest? When, uh, let's be honest. Are we not happiest with our children when they completely obey us? Right? Lily, obey me. That is often what I say to my eight-year-old. And she stares at me and sticks her tongue out. But, then, but I think some of our h- hardest moments is after she's been disobedient And realizes what obedience is. Realizes that obedience is holiness as well. Right? Some of you guys have parent issues. Right? You were not obedient to your parents. And maybe your parents weren't great. But does not the fifth commandment say to honor them? Right? One of the best ways to honor your parents is to be obedient to them. I don't know who's saying amen, but it sounds great. Just keep going. (laughs) Jaden and Eden, when Joel gets back, or when your dad gets back, don't call him Joel, call him dad. Um, When your dad gets back, obey him, right? Yes, I'll definitely obey him, Dustin. Cool, all right. Number two, Jesus took obedience seriously so that we may have a great high priest who knows our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, verses 15-16 states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When Jesus walked on earth, he dealt with the same temptations and struggles we did. He was tempted in which way? Every way. Every way you were tempted, he was tempted. But came out on the other side without sin, with obedience, right? But he understands our struggles. He understands what we're going through. Some of the best times, or some of the worst times in my life, it's been easy to get through it because I have a friend who understands what I'm going through. It's hard to go to somebody who doesn't really understand what you're going through. Like, they'll listen And they'll probably offer some bad advice, right? Because they've never experienced this before. But it's so much sweeter to go to a friend who knows exactly your pain because he knew it or she knew it. Is that not Christ who is the better friend who knows in every way you've been tempted? If you've been tempted with same-sex attraction, if you've been tempted with lust, if you've been tempted with anger, if you've been tempted with a callous heart to just serve yourself, Jesus knows what you're going through, right? He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows what you're going through. Go to him. Run to him. He is there for you. That's what verse 16 says. Let us in with confidence. Jesus doesn't say with uh, shyness, go with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing that he's your great high priest. He's there for you, right? Number three, Jesus took obedience seriously so that we would be made righteous, justified, and given eternal life. Theologians uh, call this, they split Jesus' obedience in two ways. They call it the passive obedience and the active obedience. Active meaning the good works he did, like feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, uh, I'm trying to think of what it's called making the blind see. Those works, his perfect record, was transferred to you the reason he was obedient to everything that God did or everything that the Father willed was so that you would have his perfect record. All right, Because our record, if you were to look at our record, we have a lot of criminal activity. Treason being the highest one, first of all. But if you were to look at your record, you would see every stain, every blemish, every thought. But Christ's record is perfect. And this gets us to the passive obedience passive meaning his obedience on the cross his obedience on the cross to sustain to stay there for you so that you could be cleansed so that he could die for your sins that's the thing he gets your sins on his record and now you get you get his perfect record called the great exchange all right so your record goes to him and his record goes to you and now forever you are holy and blameless blameless as Ephesians 1 says in his sight you are made righteous God doesn't look at you with disdain or disgust he looks at you as a child of God Now that we see how Jesus took obedience seriously, here's how we should take it. Two reasons why you should take it seriously. Number one, to display Christ's kingship. Why should you be obedient? Well, one, it's because he bought you. Christ bought you with his blood. You personally. He didn't buy it generally for just some you know, wide open group of people. He bought it for you. When he was on the cross, you know who he was thinking of? He was thinking of you. He bought it for you to be under his kingship, to be in his kingdom. We should be obedient because we've seen how great his love is. We see how great his kingship is. I played basketball in high school, and it was so hard to be obedient to my coach because he was like a miniature Bob Knight. If you guys know who Bob Knight is, I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. He would... uh. He'd cuss us out every halftime game, every time. It was unpredictable. It just I mean, we could be up by 20, and he would cuss us out. And I hated following him. I hated what he stood for, you know? I didn't want to be obedient to him because his authority was mockery. But Jesus is such a much greater authority. I would gladly follow Jesus anywhere, any day because he's a true and better coach, is he not? I mean, I don't think he'll ever cuss me out in the halftime game. <laughs> Jesus is a better king, and you should be glad to follow his commands anywhere you go. Number two, it's to display Christ's love. This is what Second John's getting back, to, back and forth to. What's the commandment? To love one another. Well, what love are you supposed to love one another with? with Christ's love, right? That sacrificial love that's not about you, that's about him and the person you're loving. And when other people see Christians loving one another in that way, it blows their mind. It absolutely blows their mind because they have no category for it. Oh, you must be loving that person because you're trying to get something out of them. Or you're loving that person because you want to feel good about yourself. Or you're loving that person, ETC, right? But when a person sees a Christian loving someone with Christ's love just to love, just to be with somebody, that changes the world, does it not? Last point, number three. Truth matters. Does anyone know why Jesus came into the world? If you said to save sinners then yes, you are correct, right? But one of the reasons that I find most interesting is found in John 18. There's a, Jesus has been captured, and now he's before Pontius Pilate, one of the most powerful men in the world at that point. All right? I mean, the Roman Empire was stretching from the tips of Europe all the way to Asia. And here's Pontius Pilate, like, right in the center of one of the most powerful cities in the world, and here he is, the most power, one of the most powerful people standing to who is power, talking to the one who is absolute power, omnipotent, right? And Pontius says, are you king of the Jews? And they discuss, and, they, and finally Jesus says, you are right for saying I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world. And then he says this, this is really interesting. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I was born, For this purpose, I came into the world. What is it? To bear witness to the truth. Wow. When you are up against the most powerful person in the Roman Empire at that point, well, not the most powerful, one of the most powerful, and he asks you, are you king? I mean, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm king. I'm one of the most powerful people. Or, and the reason I'm here is to bring God's kingdom or the reason I'm here is to save sinners but it's interesting that right here in this moment Jesus says for this purpose I was born and this purpose I came in the world to bear witness to the truth everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice and what does Pontius say what is truth right which is hard. I think we have that same struggle in our day, do we not? I think a lot of us, we live in a world that wants to preach uh, that everything's relative. You know? Well, you can have your truth over here, and I can have my truth over here. Or that's your opinion, is what, how they say it, and that's my opinion, right? Well, the way I'm doing things is the way I want to do it, and the way you do things is the way you want to do it. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is is that truth matters. I mean, most of these New Testament writings have been written, they were written to combat false lies. Lies that have crept into the church and were leading Christians astray. It is okay. Let me say this. It is okay to tell somebody that what they are doing is wrong. It is okay to call someone out and say that what they are doing is wrong. Now, All of us are like, well, that's not very loving. We need to get different categories of love, right? We need to understand that love is not letting somebody sit in their sin. Love is not letting somebody go down the wrong road forever and ever just because we don't want to push back on them. Love is challenging. If you are married, you understand that. If you are in a relationship, you should understand that. If you have a friendship, you should understand that. Why does truth matter? Because it matters to Jesus. And I know that's a cop-out. You know, it's easy. Oh, why does obedience matter? Because of Jesus. Why does love matter? Because of Jesus. But, you know, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> so I'm just going to go with it. Truth matters because it matters to Jesus. It would be quite absurd, actually, for the one who is the truth to then not care about truth, right? It'd be absurd for the one who says, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and then not care about what way or what truth you're listening to, right? And so we see this, like I said, in most of the New Testament letters. It's the apostles battling against lies. And so what John's getting at here is if you look at verse 7 through 11, is he's battling for the truth. He's saying, hey, there is a false deception coming in. I mean, he gets. He says these people are the antichrist, the antichrist, the deceiver. That's big, right? And what he's battling actually is known as Gnosticism. So, if you look at church history, a lot of the early church faced off against Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this idea that uh, it comes from Plato, right? It's a uh, big teaching of Plato, or not? He didn't teach Gnosticism. But his ideas formed Gnosticism. And it was this idea that um, everything earthy and physical is bad. And everything spiritual is good. So there's this like great divide, right? So that's why like, a lot of the early false teachings of Gnosticism were, Oh, yes, Jesus existed, but he didn't come in the flesh. He wasn't man. He was just some spiritual being who looked like a man. And we need to understand this. The reason that that is so dangerous is because without the incarnation, our sins have not been paid for. Because a physical Jesus had to physically live a perfect, obedient life and die a physical death on the cross for physical humanity so that he could physically, do you see where I'm going with this, physically raised from the dead. There's a good book, 800 pages, it's long and it's tedious, but it's good, N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Read it, and you will see how dangerous this is. We, and a lot of times we don't really see it in our day, we, see, we kind of see the opposite, right? Well, Jesus was a physical person, but he wasn't divine. He wasn't God, right? And I would say it's the same argument. I would say Jesus needed, I mean, for us, for our sins to be paid for, it had to be paid for by God. Not just some man. Which is what Romans 5 and 6 get at, right? And 4. In fact, probably the whole book of Romans gets at it. But Gnosticism also taught that the Old Testament God was bad, and Jesus was good, all right? So Jesus was just a spiritual being. Uh, There's a division between the Father and the Son, and then get this, the Gnostics were the only one that had true knowledge. They were the only ones that had true knowledge of what was spiritual, and if you wanted to get true knowledge, you had to go to them. That's a cult, Right? I mean, that's Mormonism, is it not? That's Jehovah's Witness, is it not? Why was Gnosticism a heresy? Number one, Jesus was a real flesh and blood person. person. Without the incarnation, we don't have the resurrection. And without without the resurrection, your sins are not forgiven. Number two, it attacked the authority of Scripture to claim you have a deeper spiritual knowledge outside the knowledge that God has given you through his word is first of all just plain dangerous, right? To say you have a deeper truth in God is probably somewhere between egotistical at best and blasphemous at worst. But God's word is perfect. It's incredibly sufficient. Actually, I went to to see what the Garden Statement of Faith said. And it's really good. The Garden Statement of Faith says We believe that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith in life, infallible and God breathed. How should you live the, the Christian life? The Bible. Read the Bible. Eat the Bible. Pray the Bible. See the Bible. All right, this is what you need to know. This is where you stand or fall is on this word. I was listening to a podcast um, by well, two things. One, I went to a conference uh, called "Taking God at His Word," and it's this book that Kevin DeYoung just wrote. Get it? It's really good. It's about the Word of God and how you need to you need to believe in a hundred percent infallible, inerrant Word a word that has no contradictions or errors, right? And then I was listening to, it's a good book, so definitely read that. And two, I was listening to this podcast called The Future of Christianity. And uh, the guy was going on and saying, you know, it's not the fact that um, that the reason Christians will be persecuted won't just be because they believe that some guy rose from the dead. They'll probably be viewed as idiots for that. The reason they'll be persecuted is that because they'll be seen as morally dangerous. Because they will say, what you're doing is wrong. Not because I say so, but because God's word says so. Right? That's the reason that this church will be persecuted in the coming days. And when the persecution comes, this is where you stand. This is where you fall. Because this is where we find out who the real Jesus is, where the real Jesus is from, what the real Jesus did. This is what we'll go back to. Truth matters. Like I said, what Gnosticism did is they tried to divide the Father and the Son. What Scripture will have no part of. The ancient church father Bede says this. Note how carefully John praises, phrases this. He says that those who do not abide in Christ's teaching do not have God, whereas those who do have both the Father and the Son. By this he demonstrates that the Father and the Son are one. You cannot have God without the Father and the Son. And I'll go go so far as what the Athanasius Creed says, that you can't claim to be a Christian unless you believe in the Trinity. The Trinity is not this broken, modalistic God. The Trinity is one, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You need the Trinity. The Father and Son are one. The Spirit is one. Correct? Correct? I'm almost done. I know. I would talk a lot. <clears throat> the reason I say all this is because truth does matter. Second John shows us why. Two reasons. Truth matters is because if you don't have truth, you don't have God. That's pretty much what the text says, does it not? Verses 8 and 9. And then I think this, the second reason truth matters because if you don't understand the difference between truth and a lie, you may be helping a deceiver do wicked works. That's one of the hardest verses in Second John, is it not? The last, let's see, uh, 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him, take part in his wicked works. That's a hard verse, right? Because that doesn't really sound like love. That sounds very unloving, actually. I think we need to remember this. The uh, ancient world, their idea of friendship was much deeper. Like, our friendship's been kind of muddled because we're like, oh, I'm Facebook friends, right? But in the ancient world, friendship was saying me and this person were friends, alright? I agree with everything he says. I fall back on this guy. I mean, this was your, like, your social acceptance. That's why you see Jesus. Like That's why in the Gospels, People are, the Pharisees are always getting upset at Jesus. Why? Because he's friends with sinners. And they're saying, whoa, 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 you can't be a friend with a sinner because that's socially unacceptable. Because their idea of friendship was much deeper than ours. But what's interesting here, though, is that I think what 2 John is getting at is that if you are knowingly supporting somebody who is leading Christians astray, you will be judged for that. You will be held accountable for that. We have to remember, just because you're called to push back against somebody doesn't mean you push back like a jerk, right? You still lovingly push them back, but not like a jerk. But we have to remember, you should not be supporting false teachers, heretics, heretics, anybody who claims to know the truth but then teach and preach and live in a different way if i was to get back up here in three months and tell you guys that jesus didn't exist you should immediately come up tell your elders that i should never preach here again and have your elders escort me out i should not be greeted in this church until i repent right because i am up here teaching a false doctrine something that deeply matters. And if you disagree with me, I'm just going to say you disagree with the word of God. Truth matters, love matters, and obedience matters. Why? Because the gospel matters. The gospel is that the truth came into the world to bear witness to the truth, that he was the king that he would live the perfect, obedient life and die a horrible death to show you his love, to take away your sins. That's why it all matters. Because it all matters to the gospel. It all matters to Jesus. This is why it all matters. Because our king went to the depths of pain and suffering so that you could be brought into his kingdom and live under his kingship forever. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> King Jesus. I feel like this message is very heavy on my soul, Lord. This message is it's hard. Your text is hard because it challenges us in ways that we don't want to be challenged. It calls us to live in ways that we don't want to live. It brings us out of our comfort zone. Lord, I pray that you bring us out of our comfort zone. I pray that you help us to meditate on the truth, that truth matters, that love matters, that obedience matters, because your gospel matters. Lord, we praise you, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.